And the others, uh, those who are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Our scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and continuing to chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and is formed beyond, beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for, what, for that which they have not been told, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I invite you to join with me in prayer. Father, these words are remarkable, both the words themselves and uh, the reality to which they point. They are words that you gave your prophet many, many centuries ago to help us to see Jesus. And so that is, um, that's my prayer, that's our prayer this morning. Uh, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to be able to look at the cross and see it more clearly in a way where it's not just a fact that we are aware of, 
but something that deeply changes us. And so we ask for your spirit to be present, helping me to speak, helping us together, including myself, to listen, that we might be shaped by you and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Brent has already said, the goal of these next few weeks is simple, and that is to to look at the cross and to seek to have it continue to shape who we are. There's a hymn, I quoted it, I think, in the newsletter article, uh, Fanny Crosby, you know, a 19th century hymn writer, and the hymn says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And the prayer, I find a wonderfully honest and realistic one because there's this awareness that even though the cross is what defines who we are as Christians, it is what shapes us, yet it can be something that we can forget. We can become so busy, so consumed by the things of right now that we forget the single most important part of our lives, what Christ has done for us. And so she prays, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's this line, I think it's the third verse. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, Bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. That's our prayer, that that we might be walking together, especially in this time, in the shadow of the cross. Because the reality is the cross is something that is easy for our hearts to kind of turn away from, to be forgetful about, isn't it? And I think one of the reasons for this is that at the very heart of what the cross is about is something that is supremely bewildering and shocking and confusing to us. It is so hard for our minds and our hearts to get around. And this is something actually we see not just now in ourselves, but we see this in Scripture If you've ever read through the gospel accounts in kind of like one extended period of time, one thing that you might notice is how utterly slow the disciples seem to be. So Jesus, after they realize he's the Christ, says, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. He doesn't say the cross, I'm going to suffer and die. And then a little bit later, he says, I'm going to suffer and die and be rejected. A little bit later, he says it again. And each time, it's just like the disciples' eyes glaze over and they have no clue what he's saying. So that when the cross comes, they're utterly bewildered. And it's not just in that moment that people are confused. We see confusion about the cross happening even centuries upon centuries earlier. We see the confusion, the bewilderment over what Jesus did on the cross even here in the passage that was just read, Isaiah 53. These famous verses that are ultimately a contemplation, a meditation on the cross. Now, for many of us, these words are familiar. They oftentimes are read at Good Friday services, if not elsewhere. But before moving forward, it's probably useful just to kind of understand the context. Oftentimes, we don't know the context in which they come. Israel, as these words are being said to them, are failures. And they are hopeless. They're despairing. They have done the one thing they absolutely must not do. They have turned their back from God repeatedly. And now they are in exile, without a home, without hope. And it's all their fault. And so there's despair because there is no thing that they can do to change their situation. And into this context, God speaks words of hope. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, you hear these words, God saying, comfort my people. Comfort them, tell them that their hardship will be over. 
And in the coming verses, you see God saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make everything right. All of your suffering, all of your pain, all of your misery, I will resolve. I am going to get my hands dirty. There's this expression, the Lord has bared his holy arm. The idea that he is going to step in and do something remarkable and give hope. And yet, as hopeful as these verses are, they are also mysterious, because it's not entirely clear how God is going to do this. There is this slowly developing picture of some figure, some servant, that God is going to bring this salvation through. And it is here in the verses that we have just read that this picture comes especially into focus. Hopefully you have your bulletin still open. If not, I invite you to or your Bibles because we're going to just be kind of working through this passage. From the outset, let me say, if you're trying to make sense because there's a lot of lines, what we have here is we have a song that is in five stanzas. And if you're taking notes, if you want to put a pen, just like do a mark after every three verses. So you've got like the first three verses and then you've got one through three, then four through seven, then 10 through 12, and then 13 through 15. You've got five different stanzas. And that kind of helps us to see what this song is doing. And the very first stanza sets us up to understand all that the rest of the song is about. And it has really two themes. The first one is that this servant is going to be victorious. You know, he's not afraid of of spoilers. He gives the spoiler, behold, my servant shall act wisely. And act wisely here just essentially means he is going to succeed. And it speaks of how he's going to be high and lifted up and exalted, which is kingly language. He is going to be enthroned at the end. My servant is going to win. That's one of the themes. But the other theme in this kind of preview opening stanza is that the way that he's going to do it is going to be utterly bewildering. Not only is he going to be successful, but what he's doing is going to be shocking. It says, at a certain point in whatever he does, he's going to be so disfigured that it's almost beyond recognition. But in the end, what he will have accomplished will cause even the most powerful people, the kings of the world, to be dumbfounded, silent in awe at what they have just seen. The salvation that God brings to this servant will surprise everyone. They will be confused by the cross. Because that really is what these verses are. Even though, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. These, these verses are written centuries, many centuries before the coming of Christ. And yet, as I hope you'll see as we work through verse by verse, they can only be speaking of Jesus. Everything about them points in a way that only makes sense when we realize what Jesus has done on the cross. We are speaking here of the cross in all of its confusion. It is, to me, one of the most beautiful poems, beautiful songs in all of Scripture. And so our goal is simply just to be reflecting on it, to be meditating on it so that it can warm our hearts and shape us. And in the following four stanzas, we see this theme of confusion being at the very heart. There is kind of this alternating between what things looked like and then an explanation of what actually took place. So one through three, what things looked like. Four through seven, here's what it actually happened. Eight through ten, here's what it looked like. And then the final three verses, here's what actually happened. And so in this first stanza, verses one through three, we see Isaiah saying, Here's one of the reasons why we were confused. 
Because this servant, that is Jesus, did not look like a hero who would bring salvation. I mean, from the outset, you know, and, and this is written in kind of a strange way. It's written about something in the future, but it's written from the perspective of someone who looks backward on what he has seen and he's bewildered. And he warns us from the outset, you are not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. I mean, that's what's kind of the point when in verse 1 it says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, we're talking the arm of the Lord is God's salvation. Saying, you're not going to believe this. No one believes this unless God opens their eyes. It is so remarkable. And the reason that people aren't going to believe this is because he did not look, the servant did not look like a hero. I mean, what does a hero look like? We think of a hero, we think of someone impressive, we think of something that looks extraordinary. But that's not what we have in the servant of the Lord. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing impressive outwardly about Jesus. You might remember how throughout the Gospels you hear people kind of scratching their head and saying stuff like, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was to them kind of like maybe, I don't know, the Ozarks might be like to us. Think of, think of hillbillies. And that's how people thought of Nazareth. Jesus would have had this thick hillbilly accent. He would have had calluses because he was blue collar. He would have had the least expensive clothes. The snobs in Jerusalem would have looked down on him. There was nothing about him externally that looked impressive. And yet what made him someone who didn't look heroic went even beyond that. What made it really hard to believe that he was the hero, the savior, was that he suffered terribly. I mean, think about the people that we look up to, the people that we admire. We admire success stories. We admire people like Michael Jordan, Elon Musk. Everything he touches seems to be awesome. That's, that's what a hero looks like to us. But, but here, verse 3, when we're described this Savior, he was despised. And rejected by men. Why is that? Well, we're told because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That phrase, men hid their faces from, why is that? Well, how are we towards suffering? We're not people who like to look at it, are we? It's, I've heard people say that's one of the reasons that that Retirement homes and nursing homes are like they are because we would rather have people who are suffering through aging kind of kept from our view because, because suffering scares us. And we would rather turn our faces away. And that's this servant, Jesus, was someone that people did not want to look at the suffering. They turned their faces away. And that is, again, what we see throughout the gospel. This is why when he says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, the disciples are like, I don't want to hear this, I don't want to hear this. I mean, Peter rebukes Jesus. No! It's likely, I think, that one of the reasons Judas decides that he's going to betray Jesus is because he does not like this message of suffering. And when Jesus goes to the cross and he is suffering just as he said he would, people turn their faces away. And the disciples deny and abandon him. 
And when we understand actually what crucifixion means, I think even though we can't excuse that, we can certainly understand it. Because crucifixion was horrific. After whipping and beating and being covered in blood, being nailed in your wrists and in your ankles and slowly suffocating under your own weight in agony, of course people would be tempted to turn their face away. I mean, don't we today, you know, when we were looking for the design for the bulletin, and I was just looking through pictures, so many pictures of the cross were, were sentimental. There was all these sunrises and, and, you know, like these pretty pictures of flowers around the cross because we don't really want to recognize what the heart of what we believe is about. It's about something that is horrific. We also want to turn our faces away from the suffering. Because heroes shouldn't be suffering like that. That's what we think. And yet, when we move to verses 4 through 6, we see, we see a different perspective on the same thing. The reason that Jesus suffered was because he was heroic, because he carried our sufferings. He suffered with us, we're told. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. We just think about that. He carried our sorrows. When we go through suffering, you maybe have experienced this. There are some friends who I think are threatened when they see suffering. And so they, they kind of keep you at arm's length. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're not meaning to. They might say some platitude, like it's going to all work out for the good in the end, but they're afraid of it. But then there are other friends who cry with you, who somehow in some way join you in carrying your sorrow in that moment. He carried our sorrows, we're told, and he still does. Our tears are Christ's tears. He carries our suffering. But we know he does more than that, don't we? that his suffering is even greater than any suffering we experience. We know that he did join in with us, that he became one of us. Even though he was one with the Father in heaven, he, he entered in and experienced our exhaustion. He experienced our loneliness. He grieved when he saw death. But he did even more than this, so much more that it was terrifying to look at. Verse 4, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It was so terrifyingly awful. When people looked at Jesus on the cross, they concluded he has to have been cursed by God for this to have taken place. And of course they would come to that conclusion. Even in the Old Testament it says, cursed is the one who hangs upon the tree. We looked and we said he is being punished by God. But then you sense this pause in this song and the writer Isaiah, it's almost like he's shaking his head as he realized how he missed something. He says, in a sense, he was cursed by God, but not for anything that he did. He was cursed for what we did. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. The word transgression here means rebellion, and that that's really the heart of what Israel's problem was. They had rebelled against God. And as God is saying, I'm going to make all things right, this is the unresolved question. 
Okay, you're going to make all things right, but what about our rebellion? How are you going to deal with that? And here we see he, the servant, he is the one who is going to be pierced for our rebellion. He will be crushed, crushed under his own weight on the cross, crushed under the wrath of God, crushed, why? For our iniquities. What's going on? The next line sheds a little more light. It says, the chastisement, or probably better, the punishment that brings peace was upon him. The word peace, as we've said before, is is much bigger than the English word peace. It's shalom. It means fullness, completeness, wholeness. The quickest way I have of defining it is if you can think of in your life one of those moments where everything felt just right and you felt full and you felt complete, you were tasting shalom. And God's intent and what he says throughout Isaiah is, I am going to bring shalom. But here's the thing about shalom. It cannot exist as long as there is evil and as long as there is injustice. And we know that. In the last few years, I feel like that's been one of the things that have been in the, in the public conversation, this sense of there needs to be outrage. There needs to be outrage when we see people embezzling millions from those who are poor and getting away with it. There needs to be outrage when we see abuses of racism, when we see sexual abuse. There needs to be justice. Where's the outrage? And what that's coming from is this longing for justice. And this awareness that the world will not be right until wrongdoers are punished. We know that. Problem is, we are also wrongdoers. So how can it work that we can experience peace when there needs to be judgment? And the answer that was never anything any human could possibly have imagined on our own is found here. God's solution is that not only is God the one we have wronged with our rebellion, and not only is God the one who is going to judge the wrongdoing and make things right, but he is also the one who is going to be judged. That he, in his son, will stand as one of us to experience justice, to experience judgment on our behalf. The punishment that brings peace was upon him. Upon whom? Upon Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, judging himself on our behalf. See, when Jesus suffered, he didn't only suffer with us. He suffered for us, instead of us, as our substitute. By his wounds, we are made whole. See, we were lost. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us turning to our own way. That's another way of saying we rebelled. And God's solution, he laid the iniquity of us all upon him, upon Jesus, the servant. In his suffering, he was heroic. Well, before he dwells any longer on this mystery, he moves right back into the way things appeared, and beginning in verses 7 through 9. And, and the emphasis here is that what happened, what Jesus did on earth, did not look like victory. It looked like he was a victim, a victim of horrible injustice. 
Verse 7 says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now perhaps to some of us who have heard this verse again and again and also are aware of what it's pointing to with Christ as he was moving to the cross, we see an image of majesty and courage. And that's kind of there, but I think the more natural reading is to see something very different. A lamb that doesn't even know it's about to be killed being silent in the moment. It's a picture of helplessness, weakness. A sheep that has to be passive as it's being sheared because it has no other choice. It's a picture of being a victim. And I have no doubt that is exactly how Jesus looked to people in the moment where he was being brought to trial and he had not a word to say And verses 8 and 9 go beyond this and speaks, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And that's another way of saying, in a kind of a Hebrew way, he experienced no due process of law. When injustice happened, people were apathetic. No one cared. No one stood on his behalf and defended him. And even after he died, he was dishonored. The point is, by every external evaluation, what we see here is not victory. We see failure. We see dishonor. I mean, that is exactly what people saw when they looked at the cross, I think. I was reading um, about, you know, what ancient historians, historians of ancient history will say about the cross, and one of the things they say is, the thing that you need to understand more than anything else is it has a single point to it. And the point is not just about suffering, and it's not just about killing, it's about completely degrading. Someone who is being crucified is being stripped of every element of human dignity and honor. One person wrote, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or at a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. That's what Jesus endured. He was shamed and dishonored. And anyone who looked would have seen failure. And isn't that what people even today look at or see when they look at the cross? I remember many years ago when I had gone to see The Passion of the Christ, you know, the movie that came out about a decade ago, and leaving it, hearing someone say, that's the saddest thing that I've ever seen. And that is what people say. When they look at the cross, all they see is something that makes them very sad. And there's an element, of course, that is deeply sad. But if that's all that people see, they are missing the very heart of it. And that's what we see in the final verses of our passage. Again, the veil is pulled back, and we see what really happened, what looked to every human eye like failure. In reality, was utter and complete victory. Verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's will. This was God's plan. And lest it seem like it's just the Father who's choosing to have this happen, the very end of that verse says, uh, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, which indicates that he himself share in this goal. The Father and the Son together chose for this to take place. This is exactly what they were intending. 
This was no failure. This was no victimhood. This was victory. And why? The very middle of that verse, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, you have the offering system. And the guilt offerings, whenever someone clearly wronged someone else or when they've wronged God, they're required to make a guilt offering, to sacrifice an innocent animal to atone for their sin. And what that was designed to teach them was that sin has consequences. That when you have wronged someone, when you have wronged God, there needs to be reparations that are made. Of course, the blood of an animal was not going to ever be the solution. It pointed beyond itself that death needs to take place as a result of guilt, but it never was the thing that dealt with it. It pointed to the ultimate sin offering, Christ Jesus. That's what's being spoken of right here. Jesus was the great guilt offering that all other offerings pointed to. In his death, he carried our guilt upon himself and dealt completely with our guilt. And the outcome, verse 11, by his knowledge, that is, by the knowledge of grief, by his experience of suffering, by his death, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. This is the astonishing salvation of the gospel. By enduring suffering on our behalf, he makes us righteous. Without fear before God, right, no matter what we have done, despite our rebellion, the sin offering has been dealt with. And he makes the many righteous, having borne our iniquities. This is the victory. But you know what's remarkable is that the victory doesn't just stop there. He says something even beyond that. Do you notice that it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now, soul can just as easily be translated life. It's clearly talking about death here. When this happens, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Or verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, again speaking of his death, he shall see and be satisfied. How does that work? How is it that someone after death can see offspring and have his days prolonged? How is it that after he has poured out his life for others that he can be satisfied? This is a question that no one at the time that this was written could possibly have answered, but you and I can. We know what it's speaking of, that it's speaking of after Jesus' death, after he is victorious in death, after he is the sin offering for all, he rises again. And the offspring it's speaking of is us, all those who by faith are united with Christ and are made righteous. We are his offspring, and he looks, and he rejoices, and he lives forever. And that's why at the very beginning of our passage, you can speak about how he is high and exalted and lifted up. It's speaking of how Jesus, after conquering, rising from the dead, ascending, and being seated at the right hand of God. The servant startles everyone, astonished as they were at his terrifying appearance in the middle of his suffering, now kings look and are filled with awe at what God has done. 
This is the message of this song. This is why you can say, comfort my people, because I am sending a substitute, one who will stand in your place. Let me say, I think this is, you know, there are certain mysteries that Scripture has for us. There's the mystery of the Trinity. It's a mystery of how Jesus could be both God and man, but here also is a mystery. How is it that God himself could stand in our place and bear our guilt. Now, I'm not sure we'll ever fully understand this. I think this is the reason that centuries before, I mean, this is remarkable, isn't it? Just think about the centuries before Jesus came, all of this was said. And I think God did this because he knew that when Jesus did it, no one was going to understand These words were meant to prepare them so that when they saw the cross, they might have some hope of recognizing something that is so counter to anything that makes sense to us just took place. Of course, everybody missed it. And so you have this this wonderful moment after Jesus rises from the dead. And you have these two people who are sad and they're walking away from Jerusalem. And you might remember Jesus kind of starts walking with them and talks about them. Like, what did just happen? They don't realize they're talking with Jesus. And at a certain point, he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And he's speaking about this. He's saying, do you understand what Isaiah was speaking about? Do we understand We are just beginning to understand what these verses are speaking about. But we need to. I think the reason we struggle is because we do not understand this love. We know what it is to love someone who loves us back. We know what it is to do some sort of sacrifice for someone that we feel would sacrifice for us. But to give yourself up completely for someone who has utterly wronged you, the one that has spoken against you, has rebelled against you, to give yourself up completely for that, what kind of love is this? We cannot understand it. But the more that we gaze at it, the more that it changes us. And so we sing... The same words that I spoke at the beginning. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the reality of what your Son has done for us on the cross. It is a mystery too great for us to ever fully comprehend. But help us to see it and to be changed by it. Amen. In response to what we've seen, knowing that we have one who has borne our guilt, we can freely come to confess our sins without fear. So I invite you to take some time with me to now, before the one who has carried our guilt, to acknowledge our wrongdoing, to acknowledge our need of Jesus. Let us confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way, we have done wrong, and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us.
have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. From Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.